Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we take you back into history to tell you about some strange or unusual thing. I am your host for this week, Barnaby King. Uh, You may have expected my co-host, Amelia Edwards, to uh, be hosting this week, but... I had an episode in mind and it's kind of relevant and it's going to lose relevancy as we go (laughs) along. So I wanted to do it sooner rather than later. So, Amelia, you have probably heard, and I imagine much of our audience has heard, that there, a, a short while ago, there was a ship stuck. Yes, the Evergreen. Yes. No, the Ever Given. (laughs) (laughs) The ship was the Ever Given. The company was Evergreen. Yes. And that had been in the news for such a long time because it was a ship, it was stuck, and it was in the Suez Canal. And that passage accounts for like, I think it was 13% of the world's shipping goes through the Suez Canal. Oh, a huge amount. Yeah. Because otherwise you've got to go all the way around Africa. Exactly. So as of the date we're recording this, which is the 3rd of April, uh, it's now officially completely cleared and the traffic has like gone. There's no more blockage. But this put me in mind of something else. Did it? Yes. Another ship that was stuck. In fact, two ships that were stuck. Okay. <laughs> in the Suez Canal? No. In the no. Panama Canal? No, no, no. Although uh, Suez does come into it a little bit. Okay. Little, just, just a teeny bit. Well, there's no way of avoiding the Suez Canal. Well, exactly. <laughs> but no, this week I want to talk about that time when the Franklin Expedition disappeared. <laughs> Wait, I thought you said it got stuck. It did get stuck, but the expedition, the people on it, disappeared. Okay. Wait, did they they find the boat and no one was on it? Yes. Oh. Well, sort of. Ooh, good ships. Yes, so this is one of the great historical mysteries of British history. Ooh. And it remains unsolved to this day. It has been the uh, subject of a lot of speculation and a lot of writing as well. In fact, I first... I'd heard about this before. Mm. Uh, There's actually a song by a folk group called Show of Hands, (laughs) uh, which is about this very thing. Um, But I didn't really know much about it. And then I I read uh, Dan Simmons' book, The Terror. Okay. Now, our readers may have heard of this book, and they may have heard of the BBC series, uh, which it's which has adapted it. Okay. Uh, I haven't seen it. I would like to see it, and I think we should start watching it, possibly okay. after this episode. All right. Mm. Um, it's a very good book. It's a horror book, and it kind of has this more supernatural spin on what happens. But I'm gonna. I'm not gonna spoil anything in the book. But mm-hmm. I am gonna talk about the historical facts. So, okay. if you are like really dedicated to like going into this book, if you're gonna read it or watch the series with fresh eyes, then you may not want to listen to this because spoilers may occur. But you know, this happened 150 years ago, more than 150 years ago, in fact. So I think that the statute of limitations for spoilers on history is not really in play here. There is no statute of limitations for spoilers. (laughs) As I found out once when I was doing my A-level course, and unlike everyone else on the course, I had read the book and accidentally revealed the ending to everyone in my class. What book was that? It was Othello. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. God, imagine complaining that someone spoils Othello for you. No, they all did. They were like, Amelia, how could you? And I was like, (laughs) I have known what the ending was to this for years. How do you not know? I I don't think I've ever actually read or seen Othello. But you know what the ending is. But I know what the ending is. Yeah. 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 So Look how good I am at not spoiling the ending of Othello to people. So, as I say, that's pretty much all I'm going to say about Dan Simmons book. I may occasionally like put some bits in that are interesting, but I'm going to I'm going to keep away from it just to stick with the historical stuff. Yeah. So this sort of centers around a time in British naval history when there was a lot of buzz about the Northwest Passage. Ooh, I love the Northwest Passage. So the Northwest Passage, do you want to tell our audience about it? Um well, as much as I know about it mm-hmm. is that people were trying to find new ways to create trade routes. And they were trying to work out whether you could send a boat basically over the top of the Earth. Yeah. Like, is there a gap in the Arctic ice that you can go through? Yeah. Because that would speed things up immensely and mean that you don't have to go through the Suez Canal. Yes. Um, to get or, to... Or sail right the way around Africa. Yeah. And yeah. I think this was probably during the height of the British Empire as well. Mm. So it'd be really useful if you could actually get to all the places you're supposed to be in charge of. Particularly China. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, there's, no. There's a, lot, there's a lot of trading going on with China. Oh, is this the opium? war as well oh yes so yeah so this northwest passage had actually been sort of theorized a long time before the franklin expedition okay routes had been planned but no one had really successfully made it on an overseas voyage through this passage and this is because it passes through the northern parts of canada which is in the arctic circle yeah and what we know about the arctic is it's very cold (laughs) Well, yes, it it is it's famously a, cold. It's famously nippy. You have to put like a a jacket and a coat on. Oh, 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 oh it's bitter out there. But no, seriously, the point is that much of the sea around there freezes. Yeah. So I think kind of the hope was that explorers could find something a bit like the Gulf Stream, a sort of warmer passage that would easily allow ships to pass over the top of the Americas and into the Pacific Ocean. Okay. Now, this had been going on. The search for the Northwest Passage had been going on for about 300 years by the time we get to the Franklin Expedition. Whoa. Yeah. In 1745, 100 years before the Franklin Expedition, uh, the British Admiralty offered a reward of £20,000 to anyone who could find a traversable route. Okay. In modern terms, this is over £3 million. I'm going to be honest with you. I am not going to look for the Northwest Passage for anything less than that. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, like it's something that could exist, mm. but might not, and it also might mean you freezing slash starving to death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, accounts of even successful Arctic and Antarctic expeditions of this era, sort of like eighteenth, uh, nineteenth centuries, it's just horrible. Like I couldn't imagine wanting to go on these expeditions but you get to be famous you get to be scott of the antarctic (laughs) i mean you do but you also in many situations have to winter in the arctic that's fun it's snowy no what that basically means is that your ship is frozen in for much of the year and we're talking about talking about bits of the arctic circle where you get the midnight sun in summer and pretty much perpetual darkness in winter. Oh, okay. So you are stuck on a boat 
frozen. Yeah. And you just have to sit there and wait until the ice thaws a bit. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. It's grim business. Uh, and these are people sort of in cramped quarters. It's a bit like lockdown, really, in those regards. Like, you but can't. Colder. <laughs> but very cold, yes. <laughs> I know Britain is famously a bit miserable for the weather, but oh, oh, this is something else. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. So you've heard me call it the Franklin Expedition. Yes. And this is named after the captain of the expedition, Captain Sir John Franklin. That's a nice name. It's a good name. You get a lot of Captain Sirs in this story. Was he any relation to Benjamin Franklin? No, he wasn't. Okay, it was just a Franklin. Just a Franklin. All right. Uh, He was born in 1786, and he was part of quite a large family who were descended from lines of country gentlemen. Oh, great. Um... But his mother was the daughter of a farmer, like so he, he's not like upper echelons of society sort of thing. He's definitely from a wealthy family, mm. but not from a, a really high status family. So we're thinking Pride and Prejudice, the Bennets. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. that'll be nice and relatable for everyone out there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, He was the ninth of 12 children. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they were all... His siblings were generally quite successful. Like, he had an older brother who uh, became a judge in Madras. Right. Another joined the East India Company. Okay. Wow, these are all, like, world-travelled people. Yeah, they were. That's a lot of pressure to put on James. Oh, absolutely. John. John. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it was a lot of pressure. And his dad actually wanted him to uh, go into the church. Okay. Um, and John Franklin was a very devout, a good devout C of E person. Okay. Um, but I, I'm already a bit worried about him. I don't know why, but I get worried about very devout people going on expeditions into the wilderness. I, I just think that's not going to go well. Well, it seems like he had... He had a sort of knack for sea travel, really. Okay. Um, He really wanted a career at sea. Um, His dad didn't want to know, but eventually the young Franklin, at the age of sort of between 12 and 14, Mm. managed to convince his dad to let him go on a seafaring expedition on board a ship. Wow. Yeah. Okay. If you're going to have your rebellious phase, that's, <laughs> that's one way to do it. Yeah, get as far away from your parents as possible by enlisting on a ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, he really liked it and he seemed to do well. And um, as he grew up, he uh, secured, or possibly his father, helped him secure an appointment with the Royal Navy on mm-hmm. the HMS Polyphemus. Ooh. I love boat names. I know, it's great. There are some good boat names in this. Uh, Franklin, originally serving as a first-class volunteer, he saw action in the Battle of Copenhagen. Okay. uh, Which the ship, the Polyphemus, was part of Horatio Nelson's squadron. Oh, really? Yeah. And they got rid of the ship Polyphemus by um, setting fire to its eye. (laughs) Polyphemus is the name of the Cyclops in the Odyssey. (laughs) Spoilers for the Odyssey, I guess. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so he's had a bit of a military career. And then as he gets a bit older, he goes into more exploration. Okay. His first sort of famous expedition uh, that he led was the 1819 Copper Mine Expedition. And this was to chart part of Canada. Okay. Basically making way for a Northwest Passage journey. And it was to, uh, it was partly overland. Mm -hmm. It was charting Hudson Bay uh, and to the mouth of the Copper Mine River, hence the name. 
Okay, I have no idea where these places are. That's fair enough. There are a lot of names for places that I think still survive in Canada today that are named after, like, British sailors. Mm. And it's, it's one of those little bit, oh, that's, that's a bit uncomfortable, you know. That... <laughs> you go, this, this had a name before yeah. white people got there. But now it's King William Island. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So the 1819 expedition was not very successful. Okay. Did he not find the Coppermine River? Oh, he, in terms of that, he was quite successful. Okay. However, he had a crew of 20. Mm-hmm. He lost 11 of them. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And to be fair, as we've said, like, Arctic exploration was dangerous business, mm-hmm. but it was a sort of point of honour amongst captains that you'd sort of, like have as few deaths as possible like you try you try i mean obviously yes but like you might you might think that there would be like expected casualties from these journeys Mm. but captains basically saw it as a like no i will have no casualties on this right however the copper mine expedition basically went with not enough supplies Okay. They expected to be able to trade with local Inuits, and it didn't go so well. Okay. So they were hungry. A lot of them were dying already. Yeah. The ones who survived were forced to eat soups made out of lichen. Oh, my God. (laughs) As well as the leather in their shoes. Uh, That's kind of the tradition, though, isn't it? I mean, it is a bit. Uh, John Franklin actually gained the nickname of the man who ate his boots as a result of this. Okay. There is also a darker side to this as well, because it is quite clear that on the Coppermine expedition, they engaged in cannibalism. Yep. It seems likely that they didn't eat each other, but probably killed the Inuits who wouldn't trade with them and then ate them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. I, I was kind of hoping it was... They ate the ones that had died. Well, there was at least one murder. Okay. Uh, possibly a member of the crew. It's not entirely sure, but we we know that cannibalism occurred on this expedition. Right. John Franklin, I believe, refused to partake, as it were. Well, so, one would hope so. He's a very devout man. Yeah. I think his religion basically stopped him from engaging in cannibalism, and he made do with boots and lichen soup. so yeah pretty grim for a first arctic expedition i love the idea that you're like okay we're not going to take all the supplies we need because we can trade but but surely that means you're lugging stuff around that you think inuits might like uh quite possibly but it may have been lighter stuff Mm. uh sort of kind of technology for example uh uh, how do i put this in a way that doesn't spoil stuff in the book say something like a telescope okay very light very or a spyglass i mean yeah very easy to carry around but obviously very valuable to hunters in these conditions sure sure so i think you should just get more beef jerky guys like (laughs) it's the answer to everything oh they had a lot of jerky a lot of jerky and it was mostly leather (laughs) um okay so they eventually were forced to turn back Mm. they'd run out of supplies and as i said they were forced to these very desperate means Despite this disastrous result, Franklin actually became a bit of a public hero when he returned. Okay. And as I said, he was known as the man who ate his boots, but it seems to have been almost like a loving epithet, really. Okay. Um, Like, hey, boot eater, how you doing? Yeah. 
It was considered enough of a success that he was given another Arctic expedition in 1825. I've kind of got this image now of the people going on that second Arctic expedition um, being a little bit maybe reticent. They're like, oh yeah, I'll sign up for an Arctic expedition. The pay is good. Uh, who, the pay is very good. Who's, who's it with? <laughs> Franklin? Oh, I, I've got like a dentist appointment in in a couple of days. I don't really want to miss that. There's less than a fifty percent survival rate for him so far. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. No, it's just this dentist appointment. I've I've I made it ages ago, and you know you keep putting it off. And I'm like, allergic to Inuit. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I like I like eating it, but it doesn't like me. Uh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> So this was more of a success. Uh, there weren't like huge <laughs> casualties and I don't think there was any sort of cannibalism involved. Hooray! I really wish my success rate was that simple. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like imagine if teacher observations, they come in. Is there any cannibalism? No? Good. <laughs> yeah. So this expedition only lasted two years. The first one lasted three. So a little bit shorter, mm. which is nicer for the men. And they yeah. return and it seems to have gone all right. Good. Like, it doesn't seem to have been, a, like, a super famous expedition, but it's better than more than half your men dying. Yeah, and, and they still got their shoes on? Uh, ooh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got to expect, if you go on a ship with Sir John Franklin, or just John Franklin at this point, that you're going to be eating shoes sooner or later. In fact, okay. I like to imagine, like, the men haven't even left port, and they're already gnawing on the soles <laughs> of their shoes. It's like, I've got to acquire a taste for it. <laughs> John's there serving up, like, soul supper, and they think they're going to get a fish stew. Mm-hmm. Nope, shoes. <laughs> or, like, tongue soup. Bit tongue uh, yeah. Popular. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, in 1836, uh, he was knighted for his achievements... Um, I know, I know. <laughs> Great, sure. <laughs> well, he was knighted. Like like I said, he was a very popular figure. Uh-huh. He was technically successful, even though, you know, pretty grim circumstances. He's only been on two expeditions. Well, he has done other stuff as well. Okay. So I, I've missed out the fact that in 1801, so when he was just 15, he was part of the exploratory voyage to Australia. Okay. He was in the Battle of Trafalgar and the Battle of New Orleans. Oh, all right. Okay, I'll, I'll let him get away with it. Like, in, in my mind, he'd just been knighted for going on two yeah. mere expeditions. And I was like, gosh, they're just they're just handing out honours like cupcakes. No, he was also, before the 1819 expedition, he was uh, a commander on another expedition, which uh, managed to get further to the North Pole than anyone had before. Oh, okay. Well so done, well done. he's basically like, he's got some good achievements, but it's mostly under the command of other people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> his own expeditions... Eh. Yeah, okay. Um, it sounds like he may have learned from the first one, though, and actually taken enough food. So, yeah. so fingers crossed yep. for, for good things with this boat where everyone's going to go missing. <laughs> so, as I said, he's knighted in 1836, and then in 1837, he actually becomes a colonial governor in Tasmania. All right. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Well, it, they needed they needed good, solid men to govern in the colonial lands. And, you know, Franklin is clearly, like, setting up for another expedition. And they're like, we're going to give you something else. Yeah, don't do this, Franklin. <laughs> yeah. Don't do this. Go and rule over Tasmania, a place that has had some famously awful things happen under the British Empire. Yeah, he also wasn't a great governor. 
Um, okay. He didn't. I don't think he did anything atrocious, but he just wasn't very good. Okay. I mean, that's probably better. <laughs> it's probably yeah. I think this is the thing for a lot of his like stuff. It's like it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> it could be worse. His his sailors on the first expedition could have eaten each other. They, yeah. No, I, I think I still think it's worse that they ate the Indians. It is. It is to us. But yeah. I'm thinking about like at the time. At the time, sure. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so the expedition that he is most famous for, and the one that I'm talking about in this episode, is in 1845. Publicly, a lot of these Arctic expeditions were to search for the Northwest Passage, as we mentioned. Mm. But the British had another reason for doing so many Arctic explorations, um, which may go some way to show why people would go on these expeditions, even though there was a high mortality rate. They were looking for oil. No, they were doing scientific research. Oh, right. Okay. Because what they were doing was charting the effects of the magnetic poles. Oh, yeah. And the idea would be that uh, they were doing this to improve navigation systems on ships. Mm -hmm. And of course, Britain is very famous for its naval power, especially during this time. So anything to give your ships even more of an advantage is really important. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't just a let's hope there's a warm bit through Canada. Yeah. It was, Even if not, we we can can... still learn more about the magnetic pole. Exactly, exactly. So the British government really wanted to mount this new expedition. They didn't actually want Franklin to be the captain of this expedition. Is that because all of his expeditions are just okay (laughs) (laughs) i mean possibly but it's more likely that it's because they really wanted this other person to be in charge oh who a man by the name of sir james clark ross okay now he had been on arctic expeditions for on a number of occasions uh he'd served under his uncle Mm. who was the original sir ross Sir James Ross, I should say. There's a lot of Jameses in this story. I've got to tell you, like we've had John Franklin, we're yep. going into the Jameses. Now. Okay. Uh, in 1843, uh, Sir James Ross had returned from a successful expedition to the Antarctic, Ooh. and he had surveyed most of the coast of the continent. What? Yeah, it was super successful. Wow. That. It- sorry, just. It's it's a huge continent. It's huge, yeah. And he had two ships on this expedition. Mm. It was like one go right, one go left. We'll meet, <laughs> we'll meet on the other side. So he he captained the HMS Erebus. Ooh. And with him with that ship was the HMS Terror, captained by Francis Rawdon Moira Crozier. Which is a great name. Are you okay. laughing at the names? I'm, I'm laughing at the name at the HMS. <laughs> terror like who is naming these boats there's actually a good reason for that and in a way erebus is a much worse name isn't erebus the god of chaos or something so yes erebus in ancient greek mythology is kind of two things a deity who is the child of chaos Mm -hmm. and also it's another name for tartarus the first place that sort of souls go to in the underworld are we the (laughs) <laughs> like this just seems so much like oh hello we are we are the british empire and we have brought our ships terror and erebus and we are going to destroy your people <laughs> this is the hms terror this is the hms erebus and this is the hms kill foreign swine 
No, so the reason that they have these names, and it's actually, it, it's something quite fun, particularly for you, me, and anyone who has read the Culture series by Ian M. Banks. Okay. These ships were actually bomb ships that had been built for war. Okay. And apparently it was quite a tradition at the time to give military ships very, like, intimidating names. Okay. Which is why it's Terra and Erebus. (laughs) Uh, The reason I mention Ian M. Banks is in his culture series of sci-fi books, uh, the warships are always given very unpleasant names because this society... Uh, doesn't like war and wants it to be ugly so all the ships are made to look really horrible and they're Mm. like psychopath class ships and yeah Yeah. that sort of thing although i've just got this image now of like the french the french soldiers being like excuse me monsieur je parle pas l'anglais i'm not terrified by your (laughs) names because i have no idea what they mean (laughs) i mean to be fair they probably would speak some english Probably, probably like the captains, but mm. like the everyday people are like, oh my god, the HMS Erebus, you say? Like, <laughs> but it's the captains you want to intimidate, I guess. Because it's the captains. Oh no, that one's called HMS Victory. Better give up now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're done shitting on these ships, are we? <laughs> No, I know. It is amazing. And when I first read it, I was very much like, well, why would you call a ship the Terror? Like, who wants to sign up to that? Again, it goes back to like, why are you signing up to Franklin's expeditions? He's the man who ate his boots. Why are you signing on to a (laughs) ship called Terror? Why don't you rename your ships? (laughs) Bad luck. Is it? Yeah, I believe so. All right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough, then. I I rescind my last comment. Well, Erebus and Terra do have some lasting monuments in Antarctic. Yeah? Uh, There are two volcanoes named after them. Oh, my God. Good good names for a a volcano, though. Mount Erebus and Mount Terra. (laughs) Okay, so the reason I bring up this Antarctic expedition is not only showing that uh, Sir James Ross was very successful, but... He came back in 1843, and the, this expedition was going to happen in 1845. Right. And there are two possibilities here. There are kind of competing stories. Either Sir James Ross was like, this was a miserable experience. I don't want to do it again. Yeah. Or he was quite injured and made ill by the journey, and he physically wasn't capable of uh captaining this new expedition even yeah. two years later i mean i imagine and this is purely speculation but i imagine that going around the whole coast of the antarctic mm. must take a really long time well four years yeah <laughs> four years in freezing conditions mm-hmm. with no fresh provisions because the nearest place to you is what argentina I mean, you could fish. Yeah. You but... could fish, hunt penguins. <laughs> Even <laughs> hunt so, seals. imagine the mercury poisoning. Jeez. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of poisoning. Yay. <laughs> well, it's the Victorian times. Yeah. So one of the other reasons that the Admiralty wanted uh, Sir James Ross to lead the expedition was that the ships that were going on this expedition were the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus. Oh, okay. And uh, Captain Crozier had already signed on to once again Captain the Terror. Okay. So basically, you've like, we've got one guy Mm -hmm. and the ship. Mm -hmm. 
We've got the other ship. Mm-hmm. We just need the guy again. Yeah. But as I say, Sir James Ross, not up for it. I've, I, okay, I've got this image of Sir James Ross, and it's probably completely incorrect. Mm-hmm. But I've got this image of him being like Lord Flashheart. And, <laughs> A little bit, yeah. And then uh, Sir John yeah. is like Blackadder. You know, he's <laughs> fine, but he's yeah. just not that good. yeah. But he was the Admiralty's second choice. So they went to Captain Sir James Franklin. And I just love this idea that you go along like, it's it's at a party or something. Yeah. And you've got all the sort of gentlemen milling around with each other. And the Admiralty comes over and it's like... I say, Sir James. Yes? uh, We were thinking about launching a little Arctic expedition. Would you... A chance be up for it? Are you mad, sir? Can't you see that I'm missing an arm and a leg? Oh, that's never stopped you before. No, it hasn't, but it takes some time to regrow, don't you know? No, I'm afraid I'm afraid I'm not the man for the job. I'm off to go exploring in the jungles of Southeast Asia instead. Oh, what a nuisance. Well, who could we possibly ask instead? Well, I'll do it! <laughs> I'm Sir James Franklin! Why does he have the fake Georgian accent from that? Because he's a sort of hick. <laughs> I'll do it, sir. Give me the admiral. To- oh, no, wait. No, you're the admiral. Give me the captaincy. Uh, very well. You are the next person here, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so he was definitely their second choice. Oh. Um, I No, don't go to the Arctic if you're someone's second <laughs> choice. So he was made captain of the HMS Erebus mm-hmm. and captain of the expedition. Um, under him, he had Commander James FitzJames. <laughs> I said there Come were a lot on, of James guys. <laughs> um, and FitzJames was the commander of the Erebus, but basically, it seems in practical terms, he was doing the actual captaining while uh, Franklin was running the whole expedition, as it were. Okay. So Franklin and Crozier were actually not unknown to each other. And not for very good reasons. Oh, no. Prior to the 1845 expedition, Crozier had actually proposed to Franklin's niece, Sophia Crarcroft. Sorry, Sophia what? Crarcroft. No. Yes. No. Yes. Okay, so Crozier is already clearly just a made-up version of Hosier, the <laughs> Irish singer. Crarcroft. No. <laughs> Crarcroft. That's, that's not... A, that, it's great. You're making this up. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Uh, So Crozier had uh, proposed to her, but she and the family had refused him. Too many (laughs) curs. Too many curs spoil the broth. (laughs) Um, Now, we don't have records of there being animosity between the two, Mm. but you've got to kind of imagine that it's a little bit chilly. It's a little bit chilly between them. Especially once they get to the Arctic. Oh, yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. Well done. (laughs) Now... The thing is that Crozier is probably the more interesting person. And in fact, in Dan Simmons' book, he's basically the protagonist. Okay. Um, there were people at the time, and there are still people to this day, who believe that Crozier should have been the one in charge of the whole expedition. He was 10 years younger than Franklin. Mm. He had more experience and way more experience of success. Okay. And obviously, as I said, he had captained the Terror before. Yeah. So why wasn't he in charge? Well, there were a number of factors working against him, and a lot of them are to do with the fact that he was Irish. Oh. So when you brought up 
Hosier earlier <laughs> actually very relevant because Crozier was Irish and this is a time where there was a lot of discrimination against the Irish, mm. particularly what were and I think still are known as the Black Irish. Yeah, um, I don't know if they're still known as it. I know that they were in Sharps Day, yes. as in as in um, the Napoleonic Wars yeah. Sharp series. Yeah. So he was seen already as sort of like untrustworthy, not really British, mm. as it were. He uh, was also a Presbyterian. Okay. He wasn't a good C of E man like uh, Franklin. Yeah. Even though he didn't seem to be particularly devout, Crozier was not really that religious. It was mostly just like a family thing, it seemed. Mm. And he was also not a gentleman by any means. He was a self-made man. Okay. He had actually worked his way up from being a cabin boy to becoming a captain. Oh my God, he started off in the mailroom. Yeah. Or he, or it, again, you brought up Sharp. Yeah. It's kind of like that, sort of raised yeah. from the rank sort of thing. Amazing. And this I'm is... Just, I'm just reading your mind. Yeah. And also, I've realised we have to explain what the Black Irish are. Oh, yes, yeah. I, we, I, I meant us to, and then we moved on. That's quite all right. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, um, at some point in history, a lot of Spanish people moved to Ireland. And mm-hmm. um, as a result, you can get Irish people who've got like tans and dark curly hair mm. like Spanish people um, and because they don't look like your typical idea of what Irish people look like they got called the black Irish because back in those days anyone with dark hair is called black yes. it doesn't mean your skin tone <laughs> but yeah. it's always kind of hilarious because they're like we got um, we got um, attacked by the black Irish and you're yeah. like sorry and you're like <laughs> Irish oh. people are Famously pale. (laughs) (laughs) The Black Irish are not at all that tanned either. (laughs) But there was discrimination against Mm. the Irish and there was an extra layer of discrimination against the Black Irish. Yeah, not only are you Irish, but you also look Spanish. Like, my God. Yeah. So we've talked about Crozier. We've talked about Franklin. We should also talk about Commander James Fitzjames. Oh, J for J. (laughs) Yes. He was uh, a very able seaman. Good. (laughs) Seaman. Um, Who was possibly the illegitimate son of Sir James Gambier. Okay. A British diplomat in uh, Brazil who was basically a notorious rake. Oh, nice. He actually had to leave Brazil um, fleeing debtors and some angry husbands, it seems. Wow. Um, okay, so we've talked about a Victorian who went to Brazil to mm. flee from his feelings before, which was Sir yep. Roger Tichborn. Yep. The idea that you have to flee Brazil because of debtors, <laughs> yeah. like, isn't that normally the wrong way around? It is, but that's just how much of a rake Sir James Gambia was. Nice. Uh, it's not confirmed. This is speculation. Like, There's pretty good evidence for it. Mm. Uh, Fitzjames himself was a foundling. Okay. And it was... Uh, I I think his mother was Irish. Okay. Um, and they're like, they're, there's evidence, but there's no certainty about it. Okay, there's kind of a motley crew going on here. It is a bit, but a crew of people who have like seen, they've seen a lot. There's a yeah. lot of experience going on here. Uh, Fitzjames had actually been involved in the expedition that was kind of the prototype of the building of the Suez Canal. Okay. I said it would come back. Yes. <laughs> he was also involved in the Egyptian-Ottoman War. Sorry, what? Well, he was around the area. (laughs) And he actually distinguished himself with his bravery. Uh, He was known to be a really sort of valiant soldier. And 
So much so that when the first Opium War broke out, he was recommended and given command, I believe, of a flagship or part of a flagship crew. Okay. And it was in this war that he was actually nearly killed. Uh, it was during the capture of uh, Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. And he was shot in the arm and the musket ball went through his arm into his back and lodged in his spine. Oh my God. Which is a pretty nasty wound by any accounts. But, you know, at the time with the doctoring, state of doctoring as it was. Yeah. Like for most people, this would be fatal. But Fitzjames was a pretty hardy person. He pulled through. Mm Mm-hmm. With the and help of a lot of opium. Quite probably, yes. <laughs> and he also, during this time, wrote a 10,000-word humorous poem oh. about the First Opium War. Now, I have the poem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a humorous poem. <laughs> a humorous poem. About the Opium War. Yes. <laughs> you don't get humorous poems about World War One. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. Yeah, yeah, so... Let, I'm going to read you a bit of it. Okay. Because it is great. Uh, let's go from... The ship is crammed full of shot, rockets and bread, and dive down so deeply she stove in her head. To our caterer's great joy, the pigs were all out, for if one had been lost, he'd have, been, he'd have set up a shout. At last through the haze Formosa was seen, or Taiwan, an isle off the coast of Fokien. <laughs> The ship was then shoved twixt Gad's Reef and, Taba- and Tobago. Um, <laughs> isn't, isn't Tobago in the Caribbean? <laughs> shush, okay, shush. Okay. Where if you have luck, in safety, you may go. Oh, I'm sure you may. <laughs> I mean, if, if they're saying somewhere between China and, <laughs> and the Caribbean. <laughs> we now were well out in the Western Pacific, where a northerly gale made us all rather seasick. Oh, no. In brackets. The last words, I assure you, are merely for rhyme. (laughs) For we've been out at sea a precious long time. Seven months are now gone since old England we've seen, and the days spent in harbour are barely 19. Oh my god. Okay. Okay, he seems to be aware this is crap poetry, though. I think he is. Uh, So there is a bit that is towards the end of Canto 2, and this is Canto 2 of 9. Oh my god. Okay. (laughs) The feast of St. Patrick, which happened next day, sent the general back without further delay. Here ends my poor rhyme, which, like a bad pun, the worser it is, more better the fun. <laughs> so, oh, bless him. Yeah, I think, I think this is tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. If you do want to read it, or just bits of it, because it is great, it's called uh, The Voyage of HMS Cornwallis, mm. and it's published under the name Tom Bowline. Uh, Fitzjames decided to use a pseudonym for whatever reason. Because it's such a crap poem? Yeah, actually, that would make a lot of sense. Okay, so I did have a little look at stanza one. And just for warning for our listeners, there is some real racism against the Chinese in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is of the era. It's bizarre racism, though. Mm. It talks about them having tails. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that was a thing. (laughs) Well, anyway, so now we have assembled our crew. Okay. But we need to get the ships ready. Because the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus, while they are very sturdy ships, obviously they've been around the Antarctic, Mm -hmm. they're not yet ready for Arctic exploration. Because the problem with Arctic exploration is the freezing of the seas between islands, which doesn't really happen 
in the Antarctic. That makes sense. You can go around. Exactly. Whereas the Arctic, you've got to try and kind of go through. Mm. And this means both ships were basically converted into icebreakers. And the way they did this was like welding iron plates onto the fore and aft of both ships. Nice. They also basically nailed an extra hull onto the ship. Okay. And they did it sort of crossways to the original hull. And the point of this is that it actually breaks up impact. So when the ship is crashing through a load of really hard ice, Mm. the force of the impact, rather than like completely breaking the hull apart, it has these two surfaces at different levels. So as the shockwave goes through, mm. it breaks over it rather than sort of rattling it apart. Okay. So that's, it's actually... That's it's, very clever. It's very clever. It's really cool. Um, they also outfitted the ships with steam engines. Okay. And this was the first time that steam engines had been used in Arctic exploration. I feel like that's going to help you. Like, at least in pressing forwards. Yeah. I've got this idea of being becalmed in the ice. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure I would enjoy particularly. No, no, you really don't want that. So they had these steam engines um, Mm -hmm. and they had 12 days of coal, which is not a great deal. Uh, There was definitely some suggestion they should have had more coal. Yeah. Um, But it could power the ships uh, to move at four knots, which is about 7.4 kilometers per hour. Okay. Which is a decent speed for some quite large ships. Okay, fair enough. Uh, They also, though, could use this heating. They had basically hot water systems throughout the ship. And the idea would be that you could heat it up with a little bit of coal Mm -hmm. and it would warm the whole ship. You basically had central heating. Okay. That definitely takes away from a lot of the worries I have about going on this ship. Yeah, right? Like, if if you can get the whole ship being a little bit warm, that that would be really nice. They could also... uh, So because it was steam-powered as well, they had uh, propellers and iron rudders, but these could be retracted into the ship so that they wouldn't get damaged by some of the harder ice. Okay. So this is all sounding quite fancy and sort of steampunky at the moment. It is. It's very fancy. In fact, I'll tell you some of the supplies they had... Uh, the ships had libraries and in total had more than a thousand books. Wow. Okay. Uh, why? Well, this is actually really interesting. So at this point, it was expected that Arctic expeditions would be frozen in the ice for overwinters. Okay. And during this time, you kind of had to keep the men's morale up. Morale is like one of the most important things in the Navy. Mm. And what frequently happened is sailors would be taught to read and write. Okay. Yeah, okay. This is a good opportunity. Yeah. So you can spend your time reading all these books and writing letters and diaries and that to either Hmm. be sent home or to bring back with you for your loved ones back in England or wherever you're from. Okay. So they had these libraries. They had three years supplies of food. Mm Mm-hmm. Which included tinned soup and vegetables, Mm -hmm. salt-cured meat... Uh, pemmican, which is a mixture of tallow, dried meat, and berries. Okay, so like a kind of meat candle then. Yeah. <laughs> Light the top, watch it go. Uh, and several live cattle as well. Okay. Now, the food, the canned food, uh, this is a bit crazy, really, and may come into something later on. Right. The tin food was supplied from a provisioner called Stephen Goldner. He was awarded the contract on the 1st of April, 1845. Oh, no. This was seven weeks before they were due to set sail. 
And they were they had an order of eight thousand tins to make. And they were like, April Fools, but not really. You need to sort these tins out. Yeah. They need to sort these out and quickly. Yeah, okay. And that may have affected the quality oh. of the work involved oh, no. in sealing these cans. Okay. But we'll get on to that a little bit later on. Question. Mm-hmm. Did the tin opener exist at this point? I don't believe so. I believe they're just cut open. Fair enough. Yeah. So you've got lots of tin food. Mm-hmm. You've got your books. Mm-hmm. You've got your coal. Good. You have uh, rum. Good, yes. Uh, which is a staple of naval diets. You'd basically have uh, grog, which is kind of like a watered down rum. Mm-hmm. And also uh, lemon juice as well to be used to prevent scurvy. Excellent. But there's also the expectation, and this was common on Arctic expeditions, that as you uh, go out onto the ice, you will be hunting and fishing. Okay, yeah. And seal blubber actually has huge amounts of vitamin C. Really? Yeah. And as we know, vitamin C is the thing which keeps off scurvy. That's true. And scurvy was the sort of bane of sailors. Mm. Um, It is a horrible disease and we'll get into it later. I realise that we've talked about scurvy briefly Mm. on a previous episode. Yes, we have. When we talked about Diego. Yeah. Because Diego had been shot with arrows, Mm -hmm. um, I think on the Isle of Mocha. Yeah. um, But didn't die for another year yeah. and we think that the and we think the reason why he didn't was because his wounds healed but then opened back up again because he got scurvy mm, that's one of the symptoms of scurvy mm-hmm. maybe maybe that bullet wound in Fitz James will come into play later on oh no <gasps> okay so the ships are ready to set sail they set sail a little bit later than expected but they have all their supplies mm-hmm. and they are ready and I will tell you now no one returned. But you'll have to hear about what happened on the expedition next time. Oh my god! This is such a huge story and we've already been going for like 45 minutes. So <laughs> and no one's even got to the Arctic I yet. know, I know. But there's so much sort of prep stuff and we, we've got to get to know our Motley crew mm-hmm. and we've got to know like what is in place, how they were going to like tackle these awful conditions. But yeah... We'll find out exactly what happens next time when we do part two of that time when the Franklin expedition disappeared. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. Tune in next week where we will be doing part two. You can follow us on Twitter and keep up to date when episodes go live and that time when four. And if you have any suggestions for us, well, don't email for the next week because we've got our next week's episode. (laughs) Uh, But you can email suggestions to ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Bumby uses in this episode. And thank you to you for listening. And remember, to invest in eels and never go on a Franklin expedition. Goodbye. (laughs) 